This is CouncilCast, part of the Legal Talk Network, and I'm your host, Karen Conroy. When you face a complex case outside your expertise, you bring in a co-counsel for next-level results. When you want to engage, expand, and elevate your firm, you bring in a marketing co-counsel. In this podcast, I bring in marketing experts who each answer one big question to help your firm achieve more. Here's today's guest. Hi there. I'm so happy to be here. I'm Dr. Kim Saxton. I'm a marketing professor at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business, and I'm really excited to be joined by my colleague and spouse, Todd Saxton. That would be me, and I am also at the IU Kelly School of Business, and I teach strategy and entrepreneurship in a number of programs and have taught a lot of JD MBAs through the years. So look forward to connecting with you all and hope we can add some value. This is going to be such a great episode, and and here's why. You know, I have an MBA, and I lead oftentimes when I first start talking to clients with the fact that I have an MBA. I went to grad school also, and so, you know, we're more colleagues than you are kind of hiring me, as some would like to think as an employee. So let's talk at a high level, you know, where we can really approach strategy and be on the same team and approach, you know, your marketing from that side. And I feel like it's not necessarily something, you know, lawyers shouldn't know what happens in business school unless they have the JDMBA (laughs) and vice versa. You know, I didn't go to law school. If I have a legal issue, I'm going to call a lawyer. So this is going to be a great insight into how we start thinking about strategy, you know, why that matters. And then we were also even talking about those JD MBAs who, um, how can we bridge some of that information between those two experiences to make it more strategic for those kinds of firms? So first of all, thank you for being here. And I am looking forward to this conversation. So the big question that we're going to talk to Drs. Kim and Todd Saxton about today is what sources of failure should lawyers plan for? This is where your expertise really lies. But let's talk first in general terms about marketing strategy, where you start, and you know why all that that's why that even is the first starting point for for law firms. Yeah, and I think really I think of strategy often as marketing strategy and so they go hand in hand and one of the biggest icebergs so that's how we've identified sources of failures in small and new companies is we call them icebergs so like the Titanic you hit the iceberg and you sink kind of idea. <laughs> And it's the same whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a, a janitor, I hate to say, even you know a tech company. The number one thing is differentiating yourself in the marketplace. So you're going to be asking somebody to give up money to hire you to do something for them. They have a yeah. lot of choices. And today, sadly, the law, some parts of law have become somewhat commoditized with people thinking they can go online and get something. They can ask people. In fact, I see people posting on Facebook all the time. Oh, I need to form an LLC. Does anyone know how to do the documents? Oh, I can help you with that. It's all online. We can get it done in 15 minutes. It'll be awesome. Right. Okay. Awesome. Until there's a problem. Right. Yes, you check the box. But did you check the box the right way? They don't even know. And so a lawyer, really, if you're going to set up a new practice, any company setting up a new practice, you have to get to what we call product market fit, which is, you know, what market you're talking to, who are you talking to, what is it you're offering them, 
and you know what the product that they want. I've had some really great conversations with a couple of firms here who specialize in startups. And so as a business school professor, they want me to know about it. And they've got a package and they're looking to partner with us in classes. And, and I'm like thinking this, and then they wrote a little book called The ABCs of Startups, right? Nice. And so like, all right, I get it. You are for startups and you yeah. have figured out they are not gonna pay X number of hours, X, X rate. They need four or five smaller things, which of course are going to lead to bigger things. And as they get bigger, you get to grow with them. But really knowing what makes us special, why should somebody pay us instead of the lawyer down the road is absolutely critical because you can't just wait for people to find you. Yeah. And you know, while you were talking, I was thinking of a lot of, especially the younger attorneys who are trying to find that that initial path where, you know, they're going to go down. And first of all, a lot of times that path forks numbers of times over the course of your your career life. And and that's okay. And that's good. You know, it's not always a bad thing when that particular role stops and you start a different one. But so many of the younger attorneys that I talk to, just want to, they're so worried about paying the bills. And so they are, they are kind of leading with fear and going in thinking, I will take anyone who will pay me. And so I guess my question is, why is that a bad strategy? You know, why, why, why is that not the way to do it? Yeah. So maybe I can speak a little to this and, and zoom out a little. So Kim and I, as you talked about, we're business professors and we do a lot with startups and the Titanic effect, the book that Kim was referencing, kind of stems from our experience over decades now of working with and investing in startups and seeing these patterns of mistakes that that entrepreneurs make broadly, whether they're starting a service company or, or other types of businesses. And those cover what we call four oceans. So we frame the whole thing in a Titanic metaphor and oceans and icebergs. And oh, it's really cool. It's very fun. Yeah, um, very visual. Yes, it is. Yeah. really. And, and Kim talked about two of the central oceans being product market fit and kind of the technical or product side of things. But then who's your market? Who are you trying to sell to? But there are two other oceans that I think are really important that touch a little bit on what you're talking about. The first is the human ocean. And in a startup, that's who are your co-founders? How do you allocate equity? But whether it's a partnership, whether you're starting something on your own, or you're joining a larger firm, that connection with the people you're working with is going to be, in in my opinion, the most important thing about your hopefully not just survival, but but thriving as you move forward. So understanding the people you're working with and, and, and not being attracted by kind of the shiny penny and or the first job offer that you get, but making sure that, that you connect with them personally, uh, that's going to help you overcome a lot of the challenges professionally and, and otherwise as you move forward. And then the other ocean that we talk about is the strategy ocean, which is kind of how the other pieces fit together. And it's not about a team and a market and a product. It's about how all of those interact with each other to either lead to a spiral of success or, or unfortunately sometimes the reverse of that. So you got to have the right people tackling the right kinds of problems and then connect that to a market that values and, and appreciates that. And, and that's a strategy piece of covering across those different areas. So yes. the reason you want to know who you're talking to is because you want to think about your services. I mean, you're paid on an hourly basis. So you have two things that go into the way to generate revenue. Either the thing you're doing is worth X amount of money, and the faster that you get it done, the higher your profit. Or you have to do something and then try to recoup 
what the value of your time was. And so when you just take whoever comes in the door, every project is a new project. So you don't have any economy, what we call economies of scale. And so either you're going to have to sell your product at a cheaper price per hour than you'd like because you're always learning. You're never in the, the, the sweet spot of you know what you're doing or you're going to lose money. Yeah. And that sounds like that doom spiral, that the, like the downward doom spiral that Todd was talking about a minute ago. So the, the way to spiral up is... Identify a group of people you want to work with. All right. How about new parents? New parents need a will. They need a guardian plan. They need insurance. They're probably going to be getting into houses. They've got risks. There are a series of packages that you could offer them to help them get through that in a cost-effective manner. Well, it's not like you exactly create a template, but you maybe have a questionnaire to assess their needs, and that reduces the amount of time it's going to take you, allows you to offer something on an entry level that's in an appropriate price point that they think, oh my gosh, it would be so much better to spend $1,000, $2,000, whatever as the starter, so that I am fully protected because I have this family I have to protect, right? Same with a startup. Same with a medical practice, same with traffic accidents, right? Sure. Whatever you pick, you need to have the adequate learned knowledge of executing in that domain, in which case you can offer a series of different things and you can find a price point that rewards you profitably for your knowledge, but also is achievable for your customers. Yeah. So what are some of the other icebergs, problems and pitfalls and failures and things like that, that you've noticed that we also, I want to mention your book, The Titanic Effect. And so we'll obviously link that on the, on the show page and everything. But, you know, that's why we're going to stick with the iceberg and Titanic theme because it ties right into your book. <laughs> so one of the things that, that we see as a pattern, and, and I think this is very true with, for example, physicians who start their own practices or, or attorneys as well, is you have to have that healthy balance between between kind of the time spent on the vision, the overall direction of the the organization, the partnership where it's heading, but also you got to do some work, right? And and we see we call it the now, the next, and navigation. It actually comes from mountain biking, where you know a, a big part of the journey is is what we call the now and the next, where you have to be very focused on what you're doing today and getting the work done for clients and who are your next clients. But but then over the long term, you need that navigation piece of where are we heading. Another way to think about it is working in the business versus working on the business. And one of the biggest curses for for an attorney could be too much success early where there's a lot of work coming in and all you're doing is spending your time doing that work and not asking those questions that Kim was talking about as to whether it's the work you want to be doing and and the people that you want to be serving. So make sure you're taking at least half a day a week to work on the business, to think about the direction, the people you're working with, and and whether it's satisfying as well as financially sustainable. And otherwise, I think that that can really exacerbate that that spiral, downward spiral, unfortunately. (laughs) So what kinds of things should they be thinking, like future sort of ideas and goals should they be planning for just kind of because I I imagine that some people are thinking this and and they imagine that they just set some sort of revenue goal but that seems very narrow and not very strategic either like yeah we all want to make money but that's not really how you build a business 
Yeah. So I think as you you were just saying, partly it's a revenue goal, but it's also think about in, in sort of bigger chunks. How big yeah. do you want to be? Do you want to have lawyers who are working for you? Do you want to have talented legal minds who aren't lawyers working for you? Do you want to have a single office? Do you want to have multiple offices? Do you want to be the outsourced attorney for another larger organization? Are you going to want to set yourself up so you can buy other attorneys, right? So there's a lot of thoughts about like, how do I scale the business? Is it just me? I'm just taking care of myself. And we've seen the whole extreme. Like it's just me and I need a secretary to actually, I want a cadre of people to, I want to take over the world. Yeah. I recently talked to someone who is, I think he has a VC background and he was talking about how to figure out the value, how to kind of evaluate a firm. And we first started talking about how the exit plan for, especially historically for most attorneys is retirement. Like it's really not a plan to sell. And they, they there is no kind of thought process in that sort of a strategy where it's thought of in terms of a business. It's just, this is what I do until I retire. And so even just thinking about, about it in those terms for some people is really kind of a light bulb idea. Sure. And yet, as we know, law firms go through a lot of consolidation and breaking up and people spinning out and recognizing that's part of it. And another piece that I want to build on that that Kim raised is uh, what kind of workforce do you want? It's not just, you know, some attorneys and then, you know, some admins who who schedule appointments, etc. There's an increasing variety, just as there is in healthcare, in who actually does the work and what's the role and, and you're educating and bringing other people in, but also the role of technology. How much can your clients or potential clients kind of self-educate. So maybe something on the web, uh, online, where they can complete some kind of profile learning to figure out if they're right for you. So you don't have to spend as much time and energy screening. You let the people who are asking the right kinds of questions and have the problems you want to help solve get to the conclusion that, wow, you are the attorney for me, and and that really helps them get through what what Kim can talk much more eloquently about, which is the marketing funnel. Are they aware of you? Are you getting them to that point of of choosing you as the provider they want to work with? Yeah, I was just going to ask, so then what kinds of failures or um, strategies do you have? I mean, coming back to the big question about failure, do you see it in specifically related to kind of marketing campaigns or maybe even lack of marketing campaigns? <laughs> well, I think it's really hard for lawyers to feel comfortable market. I mean, we see two worlds, right? It's on all yes. the billboards, accidents, whatever. And then there's nothing dead silence. Yeah. And, and the world is in between. And we've had some students who went and worked for law firms as their marketing arms. And there's a tremendous amount you can do in terms of being integrated in the community and leveraging your thought leadership and having an impact on society from a small size to a larger size, from something as simple as, you know, making sure you have ads in the right places to blogs, podcasts, online content, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, after the pandemic, things are really shifting. We are not really sure how work is going to look. But I can envision a scenario where you had law lawyers in California in a specific field with a specific, you know, industry affiliation, maybe. And in the past, we would just move all the lawyers to the company, right? And so everybody sat in the same room and did the same thing. And I could envision if you look at something like healthcare, you could have a distributed network of lawyers across the country, possibly other parts of the world that are all connected by technology. And so just really thinking, like, 
that's a different approach to your business than it is let's bring everybody to the same space. And it's become so much more accepted too since the pandemic. I think the legal industry is so slow to, I know the legal industry is slow to technology and things like this, but the subject was forced during the pandemic where now, you know, when we felt a little awkward with Zoom meetings before, now it's just normal. Like we're used to seeing each other and it doesn't feel strange anymore. So it does seem like a much more realistic possibility than it would have two years ago. Right. And so, you know, once you know how you're different and how you're going to organize your work, how are you having employees, even like what's the relationship between you and your partners, who is a partner, who isn't a partner, I think a lot of that's going to be changing in order to keep the talent attracted to the the field. And then it's the marketing issues that you said, which is people have to find you. I mean, unless yeah. you have uh, something they're going to walk past and all your traffic is going to come in the door, you really have to make sure that you are getting the word out about yourself. And some of the, the better law firms that we see around here have, you know, two, three, four, five people on their marketing staff. Yeah. Because typically it was, you know, as you get to partner, then you're, you have to do selling. But if you haven't been setting it up so somebody had something to sell along the way, this is a really tough new skill to grab onto. Yeah. Yeah. So where where do you see most of those failures hitting? And maybe it's more broad in terms of the other types of businesses that you've, the startups and the other kinds of businesses that you've done your research with. But what are some of those other failures that they're, that you're seeing or that you hear about in terms of, of the marketing and those campaigns and the, the avenues they go down that are the wrong, the wrong roads? It, that varies so much. I mean, because if you're sure. reaching out to consumers, you know, you actually do need to spend a decent amount of money in advertising. I mean, if you wait for them to come, they just, they don't come. It is sure. a shouting game. And so understanding the cost effectiveness of, of what you to do is really important. And then business to business is still done by sales, by, you know, who you know, how you know them, being connected. And so getting the balance of those two things, I mean, if you're trying to do business to business law, you know, having a person calling people is probably not going to be super effective. And that's getting involved in organizations that's being recognized on, you know, being found through organic search. So none of these things are costless, but you could be investing in the wrong things and people don't find you. So one of the others that that I think we haven't really touched on, and here we are talking, and we're business school people, right? But we're talking about that intersection of of business and law. And and I think I've I've seen some firms, and I know some, again, in the healthcare arena and hospital systems that have gone this route where they bring in the business person to make the business decisions, and they want to run it like a company. But to them what running something like a company looks like is more like the fortune 500 what they call machine bureaucracies where there's a lot of top-down constructing of strategy and then the implementation kind of ripples through the network but but as you very well know and certain your your audience does that's not how law firms operate and the first kind of loyalty is is often to the clients themselves and and then to the profession and you would not violate professional norms uh if your organization asked you to uh 
uh, and, and again, there are parallels in, in the healthcare field. So understanding how organizations like law firms, like service, and frankly, like universities work uh, is really important because you can start to grow and, and bring in somebody to run part of the practice who runs it like a business person and just runs it into the ground. So, you know, that's just a matter of understanding how some of the business concepts work in a law firm or service firm versus other types of context. And, and I think it's it's important to recognize what the priorities are of your, your, your partners and, and the attorneys, what motivates them, and then what, again, is going to, to lead to sustainable activity. I also want to come back, I, I think Kim touched on this, but kind of the next generation of attorneys. My brother was a law school dean for a number of years and still teaches at a law school. And, you know, the, the field of interest of people going into law school and and some of the challenges of the legal profession have have created a almost a crisis. I don't want to over-dramatize it. But, and, and that's one where people, instead of viewing people at other firms as, as kind of the competition, there, there's a lot of room, I think, for cooperation between law firms to work together for the good of the, the profession to get new people into it, cultivate those relationships, and, and remove some of the negative stigma that I, I think at least some people have about the profession and the opportunities within the profession. Yeah, along with just the stigma, there's a lot of, I I also recently talked to someone just about mental health issues within the legal profession, and the rate of mental health and addiction issues within lawyers is exponentially greater than the general population. So there's some issues there that clearly need to be addressed and just be, you know, if you're going into or are part of the legal world, you need to be aware of that this is a high-risk potential issue, and you're probably going to see a lot more of it amongst your colleagues than the general population. So, you know, how can we address that? I saw some basic things. There was an ABA article about, okay, maybe we have these networking events and we don't necessarily do them in the evenings with alcohol. You know, we have other things like, you know, where it's it's okay. Yeah, and, do them and in the morning with alcohol. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. That's yeah. not where you were going. <laughs> right. No, not quite. But then to go back to your point about how to recognize the uniqueness of the industry where universities have a different language and a different approach and, of course, a different strategy for the way they're going to approach their, I guess, audience is, you know, when they're marketing. And same with the legal community, same with healthcare. So I've worked with so many firms who come to me and they're, first of all, surprised that I only work with law firms. And they're oftentimes coming from a marketing agency that is much broader and they didn't recognize all the pitfalls of working with a broad marketing marketing agency and there's just so many areas where they they can't necessarily understand the nuance in the legal world and the legal language and how we talk about clients not customers and firms not businesses and you know just the language itself is slightly different so of course your strategy has to be different and even from you know one practice area and one client to the next, I have some clients who really want to lead with with their calls to action and you know getting those those clients through the door, and then other clients who absolutely do not want it to appear salesy in any way. That's the opposite of kind of their entire philosophy in life, and do not use any kind of language that makes it sound like we need money in any way. So. How do you, you know, within the confines of the legal language and understanding all of that, how do you find your right way with figuring out that strategy? 
Yeah. So I think it's really important. And that's back to that strategy I was we were saying before, which is like, well, what kind of business do you want to do? And then recognize that, you know, marketing isn't dirty. It's, it is actually yes. necessary. And so the question is, how do you find the way that you'd like to do marketing, right? So let's say, you know, that you are in healthcare and you work with businesses. Well, then there are healthcare business networking organizations that you can be part of, that you can sponsor a meal. You know, there are ways to show that you're supporting the community that doesn't look like selling, even though it is selling. But you, you have to find that, that balance. But I also always tell people, a lot of work is done online these days. And even if you were to sponsor something, the first thing that when somebody thinks I might want to use them, they're going to go to your website. And they're going to Google things. And so understanding the words for what people are looking for when they're looking for services like yours is going to be really important. And then showing that you are a thought leader for those, that you're the experts. I mean, when people are looking for attorneys, they are looking for experts. And so being very clear about your expertise and making it easy to find you for that expertise that's really what the subtlety of marketing and law is about. It's not about crafting the best ad. It's yeah. about putting together the best story. Right, or being the lowest price, unless you're trying to, the Walmart strategy. <laughs> well, and that, that I think is a nice segue to an, another segment that I, I think is a milestone that we point to with a lot of entrepreneurs, which is what's, what's the first time that you said to a client, no, you're not a good fit for us? Right, because you fall into that. All comers, we'll we'll take anybody who's willing to write us a check. And early on, there has to be a little bit of that, right? You want to keep the lights on. You got to pay your people. But when you are able to say, "No, we're not the right firm for you," I suggest you go see someone else. Or, "No, we don't want to," you know, tailor our technology to answer your problem because that's not what we do and that's not who we are. That's a huge milestone and and trying to get out of that mentality of we can also and you know we say no, we don't say no to anybody and and being able to start recognizing is a a real kind of maturation point of of early to mid stage startups anywhere but but certainly in the legal profession. Yeah, and I will say the first time I ever did that it didn't feel good. It felt kind of <laughs> right? scary. It felt like, oh my gosh, I just walked away from whatever, however much money I thought that was going to be. And so then, you know, I, usually when I make a decision like that, I kind of go for a walk or something like that. And I'm like trying to kind of calm myself down. But there has never been a single time that I've done that, that I've regretted it in long term. So there, there'll be that initial, I think that's the piece that people get worried about is that initial probably 15 minutes or so of where you worry about it. And you kind of think, you know, you kind of backpedal a little bit inside your head. But long term, it always, it's always turns out to be the right choice. Yeah, it's just hard to have that discipline, right? And we have to do it as individuals, too. It's hard for us all to say no to something. And yet you have to ask yourself, if I do that, then I don't do this other thing. I mean, it's a good skill to practice. Unless, of course, you're saying no to me, in which case I would really like you to not practice that skill. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) All right. So let's go to the book review. I know that you, we are obviously going to link to the Titanic effect. And Kim, tell us a little bit first about your book. And, you know, I, I know we mentioned it and it talks about 
Uh, well, you tell us <laughs> instead of me telling you, tell, tell us about the book. As Todd kind of teed up, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of meetings with startups and they met, some of them we've invested in, some we just advised, some we just talked to. We have a kind of two coffee rule we'll, or two lunch rule. We'll talk to you twice and then, then we need to be paid for it basically. And we would just keep hearing these same things over and over again. So we talked to a couple of other folks who are in startups and do a lot of advising and we came up with these 32 mistakes that we commonly Ooh. see. And you're like, because you could almost, you know, like you hear the conversation and you'd be like, hey, did you talk to so-and-so? Yeah, yeah. Was that number, you know, three? Twelve. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Three, a 12, and a 17. We then organized them into in this. And we the way that we thought about it was, you know, you always have to make choices. But sometimes you don't really understand the what the constraints that those choices place on you. And so that's what we try to lay out in the book. Like as you're making these choices, recognize this constraint. And that constraint, you can't see the whole thing because it's under the water. And that's how we got to the icebergs. Oh, that is so good. I love I love those visuals. I mean, I think most people are very visual thinkers, but that makes so much sense to me because I think as you're making those choices, you go in with fear and you're only kind of seeing this very narrow, you know, yes or no, black or white thing, but there's all this other stuff. Well, here's the crazy part. So we got this idea. Todd is very creative with names. And he said, oh, I know we should say something about the Titanic, icebergs, Titanic, you know. And so we started doing research and we discovered that we saw all these parallels with the Titanic. And so the way the book is organized, we start by telling the tales of the Titanic, which at the time was a massive innovation and a really a small company, maybe even a large company. And, and so we go through all the details and then we, we say, all right, here are the icebergs. And then we go through live real examples. We've dug through startup graveyards. um, So we have a lot of stories. There's parts of it that are a little bit like a textbook because if you don't understand the concepts, you can't really understand what we're doing. So we have to educate you on the concepts. Sure. It's like the cheapest business textbook you could buy, though, because you have like corporate strategy and marketing strategy and product strategy jammed into one $15 book at Amazon. Yeah. And those textbooks are never that cheap, (laughs) speaking as someone who went through business school. But it's it's like as you were talking, I just it's brilliant to think of the Titanic as a startup. I mean, that's that's the thing I think nobody really thinks in terms of it being this startup startup company. Had they ever seen sailed anything before? Well, Todd can tell the story about why we should really be thought of as a startup. You take it away, babe. So the the White Star Line was actually about 50 years old when they started building the Titanic and in fact got their start sailing to Australia and, and then started the passage to the United States. But with new, they struggled some financially, brought in new investors who mandated not only changing shipyards, but a change in strategy, which was kind of the birth of the idea of the Titanic and her sister ships. But the the problem was, you know, just a real simple uh, example. They needed something like, what was it, two million rivets or something to build the three ships, and they just ran out of quality rivets. So they started using slag or, or, or you know, kind of recycled iron and, and other content, and those were the rivets that were holding together the pieces together where it hit the iceberg. So you have this coincidence of trying to grow too fast, which is something I think to come back to with, with firms in general, is that you want to make sure you have sustainable quality inputs to keep up with the growth. And and in this case, they didn't. They ran out of able-bodied, essentially, people who do the riveting, right, that, yeah. that put these things together. They didn't have enough people. They didn't have enough quality rivets. And that 
contributed. That wasn't the cause, but it was it was one contributor. And I think that's another thing. It, it's in retrospect, we often kind of point to these failure stories and say that was the moment. Well, the reality was that moment was a result of a lot of decisions before, and that moment resulted in a chain of events that that led to failure. And the the, the bad news is that makes it really hard to say if you just did one thing different, yes. you know. But well, on the other rarely, hand, yeah, there's rarely a golden ticket or the yeah. reverse, like a, right. a, the opposite, whatever the opposite of a golden ticket is. <laughs> I don't but, know what I, color that would be, but yeah, exactly, not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many, especially for law firms, so so many lawyers think SEO is the golden ticket. And they think, you know, it doesn't even matter what the rest of it doesn't matter. I'm just going to go bananas, spend tens of thousands of dollars with Google, and I'm set. I'm, there's my seven figure firm. And it's like, well, not really. You know, if, if <laughs> SEO was that simple, and if that was it, everyone would do it. But then the same with the same in the reverse, you know, there really is never usually just one thing like you're saying, with anything in life, even when you look at divorce and relationships and any of that kind of stuff, there's never just one thing that kind of make makes it kind of fall apart and is that sole source of failure. Except saying no to your wife. Right. Yeah, right. Sorry, exactly. Can't. Exactly. Well, seeing that she's <laughs> sitting right there, yes, we'll say that. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so, Todd, then what book do you have to recommend to the audience? Well, so I'm going to cheat here and throw out a couple okay. because my initial response was, and it's one I've Kim and I have listened to recently, which is called Extra Life by Stephen Johnson, and it talks about innovation in healthcare over the last hundred years and how it's really dramatically increased our life expectancy. But he really weaves stories together. Stephen Johnson has a series of, of great books. But I think when it comes to law firms, the kind of legal context, Daniel Pink has a couple of books that I think are really good. One is called A Whole New Mind, and it kind of talks about the changing nature of work and, and what makes complex tasks important in, in our economy. And then Drive is more about personal motivation. And, and I think for someone, you know, either starting their own firm or even working with a small or even large firm, just understanding those components, if, if you can get a better understanding of kind of fundamentally what's happening at a higher level in the economy in terms of complexity of tasks and, and the interweaving of technology with other parts, bringing both sides of the brain together is, is really valuable. But, but that ends up residing in individuals and understanding being able to motivate individuals uh, and, and what motivates yourself is, I don't think there's anything more valuable. Of course, our father was a psychologist and you know taught psychology for 37 years and practiced uh, as well at the state prison. So just understanding that behavioral component, I think is would be very helpful to any members of your, your audience. I loved Drive. It's a few years, it's been a few years since he's he wrote Drive, but it it's it's very still relevant. And I, I think it's one of the elements that when people are putting together a business, that people really kind of forget that human element of it. And this is drive is about what motivates all of us. And so it's as human beings, what what are we going to get inspired by? What and there's those this really nice kind of three-legged concept that I won't ruin because you should definitely go out and read it if you haven't already. But such I love Drive. It's such a great book and it's great for business, but it's great just for as a kind of thought process in life in general as a human for to kind of keep it balanced between these three areas of of what you know in general kind of motivates the human brain such a good book so what is one and I'll say this can be two big takeaways you can each like have a uh turn at this but what's a big takeaway that you would want listeners to get from the episode 
Oh my. I, I actually, th this may be too ambitious, but I hope just thinking differently about your practice and its potential, even we don't have answers, but we're really good at asking questions. And if we can get even some of the audience to ask some different questions about what gives them meaning and whether they're operationalizing their work in a way that, that is rewarding and sustainable, and, and if there are even seeds of ideas that, that they can build on, you know, hopefully we, we do with our, our students and, and our colleagues and, and our stakeholders. So hopefully just thinking a little differently and maybe asking some different questions than, than folks have asked in the past. That's awesome. And what about you, Kim? My takeaway would be to please step back for a minute and think about how to position yourself in the marketplace. It feels really awkward, but you will gain so much efficiency by really understanding who you're talking to and why they should buy you. It'll, it'll help you drive your business forward. Yeah, it really does. It creates such a more clear-cut path. So you're not wasting time talking to these guys over here and talking to those guys over there. You, It's just like a spotlight on the right conversation to have. And then it answers all those future questions about, okay, should I be doing Clubhouse? Should I be doing this social media thing? Should I be doing that? And, and then you can keep coming back to that positioning. Well, does that align with what I defined earlier and does that make sense? If so, yeah, great, go for it. If not, okay, I can disregard it and not waste my time. So, well, a, fu a funny yeah, story today, I did a lunch workshop with the American Marketing Association here locally, and I was talking about that, about you on a personal level doing that. And one of the people in the audience I've been working with for a couple of years, and, and she came up and she said, oh, by the way, from the last time we had this conversation, I put together a plan of all of the goals I wanted to accomplish in the next two years. It's two years, and I just looked at my list, and I have accomplished every single one of them. Amazing. That's especially considering the last two years. I mean, right. that is yes. that is a pretty significant uh, achievement. That is awesome. And honestly, I, I feel like that is a huge thing that people struggle with with marketing is, you know, getting distracted and not having that plan and continuing to add to the list instead of starting to check off that list. Thank you so much. We will uh, link to your profiles, your LinkedIn, your book, all of this good stuff on the show notes and in the social media. But thank you both for being here today. That was such an awesome conversation. Thank you, Karen. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CouncilCast podcast. Be sure to visit our website at council-cast.com for the resources mentioned on the episode and to give us your feedback. If you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate if you could rate and review the podcast on Apple and subscribe to your favorite podcast platform. See you on the next one.